Hi guys, welcome to Radical Rocks. Today we've got a super exciting episode, jam-packed with good stuff. found a rock with no name that time but today we are going to be talking about morganite uh, things you don't know about rubies we are going to talk about uh, dino discoveries in Oregon what about the dragon man actual fossil found of uh, what is being called a dragon man a Neanderthal artist t-rexes that roam Montana Mars minerals with insane names and three aspects to think about when investing in gemstones. And then uh, we'll also tell some stories about some gold mines if you want to hang out with us to the end. From mines of the Eastern Sierra. Way back in the day, areas you could still go back to and possibly find some gold. So with that, before we get started, I want to thank everybody for tuning into the channel and supporting us by liking, sharing, and um, commenting. All that good stuff. Letting your friends know. So as we build our community on uh, our podcast here, and as we grow on the different social medias, you can go to RadicalRocks.com. Scroll down to the bottom. All our links are right there. It's all there for free for the taking. All right. So let's get right into it. Um, Here's an interesting one I didn't mention in the beginning, but uh, Tanya Tucker, a country music singer from the 70s and 80s and uh, maybe a little bit in the 90s, she is selling her personal collection. It's on musicrow.com. It came out on July the 2nd, written by Lori Holleberg, and she has a wonderful collection of gemstones, um, a Turquoise and sterling silver squash blossom necklace, uh, Navajo carved semi-precious stones with animal, uh, little animals carved, sterling silver spiny oyster inlay cuffs, and much, much more. She's selling some of her vintage uh, clothing that that made her uh, very flashy when she would do her shows and her music. Now next... Let's check out let's check out this dragon man, okay? Uh there's several articles just bombed on the internet. It's everywhere. Dragon man may replace Neanderthal as our closest relative at labline.com.au. Uh article written here in the Life uh Scientist and This article goes on to talk about this discovery. They've got some uh, pictures of the skull here. I usually don't talk about these uh, so-called missing link and uh, things like that, humanoids and things like that, because they're they're really, um, it's it's such a, uh, 
they change so much. And I can just give you an example of this today. Um, they talk about it being one of our closest relatives. Um, all this, it, it must have been intelligent. It probably uh, deranged or devolved from the Neanderthals uh, 400,000 years earlier than thought. Uh, long on and on about this creature, which has, uh, they don't know how big the brain was. They have uh, found that it has large eyebrows and a flatter face than what you would typically see in the primate um, category. So they are feeling this is more a humanoid. And then not long later, another article comes out, Dragon Man Skull, our closest relative, and then a big question mark from thenakedscientist.com. Uh, it was written by Chris Smith, produced by Phil Sampson. They have a picture of the ancient skull here that was actually discovered decades ago, but they're, you know you would think it was just discovered yesterday the way uh, they've been bombing uh, on the internet and stuff. Now they have a picture of it here displayed with all its teeth. I clearly read in the detailed article that there was only one tooth. So they've already are mocking it up um, and showing this skull which they call Dragon Man. It has a trace of uranium in the skull. Uh, they feel it is over 100,000 years old. And um, there's a lot of debate here, though, what it actually is. And that is based on the cranium and uh, everything else. But the one thing is, it is uh, the top of the skull is intact. They say that it's very rare to find um, skulls in this category that they've given it in this good of shape. So um, if you're into that, you can look that up at thenakedscientist.com. But I thought it was interesting because the articles are already arguing amongst themselves um, how much of a humanoid it is or it isn't, if it's before the Neanderthals or after the Neanderthals, and so on and so forth. So this is what you get um, with fossils and stuff. So always take it with a grain of salt. Now, T-Rex used to roam the Mondok, which is in Montana. Um, this discovery was made in about 1905, where there was huge uh, discovery of this dynamic lizard, the Dynom Dimosaurus, which now is known as the Tyrannosaurus or T-Rex. Uh, very nasty carnivore, uh, carnivore literally serviced uh, for the first time across the border. Uh, when that was written. Now, of course, it's been over 100 years, and this area is called Hell Creek Formation, which is visible only in a few locations, um, several of them in Montana, North and South Dakota, and a few spots elsewhere. At the creek formation, about 300 feet thick and about 100 feet thick over at the Bismarck area. So there's two main areas where they're finding these, and they dig them up all the time. The area, they say, uh, was once um, a huge river that, that flowed east of the Rocky Mountains, created these deposits the size of the Mississippi Delta on the west side of the sea. It was teeming with life, including all these dinosaurs and many other creatures like crocodiles, turtles, fish, salamanders, even mammals. And that's because they found these uh, animals there and also exotic uh, plants such as ferns and palm trees, so it was hot and humid where T. Rex uh, would live. 
And this is really substantiated all over the world, even up at the polar regions where they've dug up fossilized ferns and stuff. We know that uh, as, uh, uh, the, as stated in some old texts, including the Bible, that the earth was like a hothouse. It had a cloud cover which would have made the earth warmer uh, like a greenhouse and kept uh, it warm even at the polar regions, which would have enabled these plants to grow and these giant dinosaurs to be able to prosper and flourish. So you can read more about this article article here at the Wilson Herald, uh, wilsonherald.com. It talks about the 14 different uh, skeletons that have been found at these sites with one being complete entire skeleton. The other sites um, most of these fossils are only found in parts and pieces, and that's typically how it is. So when they find one all together, that is a really wonderful find because when it's funny, so many times they will find these fossils and they, they'll try to guess what the rest looks like. And they've done this, I don't know, probably a hundred times, I'll say dozens of times, and then they come back and they show uh, when they find a whole one, they're like, oh, we were way off. Right, or sometimes they're even pretty close, so you never know. Now, there was this uh, so called 103 million year old dinosaur fossil found in Oregon. This is on foxnews.com, written by Courtney Moore. You can see a picture of this uh, ornithopod, um, which is uh, depicted here as a um, creature that might have walked on two legs or four legs, um, certainly looked like it could walk on two. It had kind of a parrot type snubby short beak in the shape of a uh, T-Rex, but does not look like a vicious carnivorous, um, kind of an overlap, they say, of carnivorous. So it might have been an omnivorous type of, of creature here with some sort of a bird-like beak on this uh, creature here. And they said uh, it was a fossilized dinosaur vertebrae and that's all they found. <laughs> um, but uh, they are still digging, and they're hoping to find more pieces of it. They found a toe, um, and then uh, they keep digging, and hopefully they will find more. I don't see anything else they have found. The original toe bone found in eastern Oregon. Um, the vertebrae found by... The dig foreman, Greg Carr, was reportedly found four miles northwest. So they don't know if it came from the same dinosaur or not, but this is what they found. This is how they base it, guys, is just a few fragments sometimes. All right, next, Morganite. Morganite is not just a pretty stone, but it is a dazzling success. Let me get a sip of coffee here. Yes, this morganite is an unusual gemstone. It is very beautiful. It can fall in the color spectrum somewhere between pink and a lustrous brown. Pink being, of course, more valuable. Um, it can be heat, uh, treated with heat to bring out the pink. You can read about this at jig, uh, digitaljournal.com under morganite, not just a pretty stone, a dazzling success. It is very refractive, um, so when it cuts, it's, it's quite beautiful, multifaceted. It literally goes with everything from diamonds to gold. Very popular as an engagement stone. 
gemstone that is. Um, not super expensive considering the rarity of it. Uh, it is not super heavy duty. It is from the Burl family, and that is gemstones like aquamarine. Um, they say tourmaline. Tourmaline is actually very hard, and emeralds. I would say uh, aquamarine and emeralds. It's more like that. Morganite can also be semi-translucent, called a excellent lightning lighting stone. The characteristics means it can match well with classic stones like diamonds very effectively. Now, if you just get some cheap run-of-the-mill morganite at a uh, chain store, it may or may not be really good. Uh, you can get it as an average of $100 per carat. But uh, if you want to get some really good morganite, you'll want to connect yourself with a high-quality uh, jeweler and gemstone dealer and get more familiarized with the stone, the cuts, and such. Um, very good as uh, a stone to have if you're selling gemstones as well. And you can see it in a variety of shapes, colors, and so on and so forth. If uh, you're looking for Morganite, here's some advice. Browse the gemstone size. This is simplest and most effective way to learn about design, options, and price. Second, look at the different gemstone design cuts. Morganite is extremely adaptable for any type of design and can be cut into many beautiful patterns. Pay attention to larger carrot designs. These designs are unique, very versatile, and often stunning. Larger carrot designs are great centerpiece. I think they can even be a good investment. Um, the company that's sponsoring this, uh, not me, but this particular um, article is RMC, and they are a pioneer in gemstone manufacturing out of uh, Bangkok. And today, RMC is one of the biggest suppliers of semi-precious and precious gemstones in uh, Hong Kong, Bangkok, Tokyo, New York, and the cutting factories are in India if you're interested in that. I figure that's the least I could do for uh, looking through their article and sharing it with you. Next, here are six things you probably don't know about rubies. If you go to JCK, J is in Jack, C is in Charles, K is in Kate, online.com, you can read six things that uh, about rubies by Amy Elliott. And she says here, you know, because it is the birthstone of July... The gemstone comes from the Latin word ruber, which means red. Early cultures believed that rubies contained the power of life because it represented blood flowing through our veins. Um, these gemstones were produced long ago under extreme pressure and a remarkable quirk of nature. Rubies have a quality known as pleochlorism, which is the appearance of different colors in the gem when viewed at different angles. And the gemstone cutter has to try to pick these out and try to get the most red out of the out of the gem. Ruby's also fluorescent under a UV light. And the 25.59 carat um, Magok Burmese Sunrise Ruby was set in a ring. And it is the most expensive priced ruby ever sold at auction, fetching $30,335. $698 at a Sotheby's in 2015. The world record in terms of price per carat is the Crimson Flame of 
Burmese ruby that sold for $1,196,809 per carat at a Christie's Hong Kong in December of 2015. They have some beautiful pictures of um, uh, jewelry with rubies, of course, that you can look at and hit all kinds of, uh, uh, you know, links and stuff like that. Now, we have not talked about uh, Mars much lately, but there has been some Mars news here and there. The UAE says, Hope Probe shows Mars as you've never seen it before. This is from the kawa-news.com station, or uh, excuse me, address or website, kawa-news.com. And they said that uh, one of their little uh, Arab... uh, I guess it would be an explorer or a probe, was circling around and they saw an aurora which on the dark side of Mars which showed a beautiful blue color. Um, and it is, has, it's a phenomenon that is spectacular, uh, a bluish aurora, almost mauve at times, which oscillates in the atmosphere of the red planet on its hidden side, kind of the equivalent of our uh, aurora lights here on earth that we see the northern lights or polar lights that we see so it's beautiful the sun's rays are getting there and uh, causing this beautiful colorous area that uh, that we can see here on mars they have a little video there too if you want to check that out how about this one the ocean is exploding due to mud volcanoes This is another one that um, kind of is all over the internet right now. How the oceans are exploding due to mud volcanoes. There's a lot of videos on this. Now, if you want to go to the website and see one of those, one of them is at the number two, oceansvibe.com. The number two, oceansvibe.com. And this oceans... uh, to Vibe News Station here has a, a beautiful picture. Well, maybe it's terrifying picture of these huge flames shooting out. And Taylan was the one that wrote it. Taylor, she wrote it. There's no, or she or he wrote it. There's no last name, no first name. And um, there's several videos here. But what's happening is there's elements here. It's happened under natural circumstances. Gas in the ocean is building up pressure and ripping through and and causing a fire underwater. And that is um, pushing up all this hot, superheated mud and water to the surface. And this can even be in some of these mining areas um, in the Gulf, I think. Where is it? The Caspian Sea, where they have probably over-drilled and... Um, they feel that when the rocks are shooting up through this hole where the pressure is releasing from this natural gas, that some of these rocks create sparks and an environment where fire can actually start up under the water in the ocean and create this mud volcano, as it were. Uh, It was 75 kilometers off the coast of Buka, and um, pretty terrifying to see this volcano in the Caspian Sea here just shooting out this huge plume of fire. It's actually um, 
when they finally get out, it actually creates, uh, if the water's not too deep, this mud island, which they have depicted here with a volcano in the middle. And um, again, they feel this is ignited when the rocks uh, spark and collide together from all of the pressure. Very, very bizarre and interesting phenomenon. Kind of scary. Next, Minerals with Insane Names. You're going to love this. Uh, Minerals with Insane Names at acsh.org, the American Council on Science and Health. The article's by Josh Bloom, written on July the 6th. He did a wonderful article here on these really bizarre named uh, minerals. Now, some minerals, which uh, a dozen elements, are named after people or places. You know some of them. Curum, Einsteinium, Livermorium, Nobelium, etc. Most of these elements are ghosts. They don't really exist. You know, Leverite, that's another one of the fake ones. But there are some with weird names that actually do exist. One of them is was discovered at a dump in Eureka, Utah, and they do not know if the person who discovered this had some sort of stomach problem or what it was, but the name is Eureka Dumpite. So uh, Eureka Dumpite is a pretty little blue mineral, very, very kind of rare, um, and named after this dump. <laughs> Another one is uh, Muluite. Uh, this was found in the Mulu Downs Station in Australia. And there's Goose Creekite, another one named after Goose Creek Quarry in Virginia. And um, there's another one called... Uh, the, the person who discovered it was found in 1881. A mineralogical... A, a guy who discovers minerals. Mineralogist... Uh, his name was Alan Bruck Dick, his last name. Um, he discovered a new clay mineral. Years later, scientists would name it after Mr. Dick, and uh, it's called Dickite. So that's his rock. Uh, it is a Dickite, and it is what it is, folks. This this is family-friendly show, but uh, the next weird rock is Fucosite. And when you see the way it's spelled, you kind of go, oh my goodness, what in the world is this? But it is pronounced Fukusite. Um, This one was discovered in Japan, so that's not uh, too unusual of a name. And then in 1999, under the new name, it was named Fukusite after the area it was discovered. The next one was discovered in 1824, and... um, this name is was this mineral is found in Cummington, Massachusetts, and it's called Cummingtonite. So it's a, a golden kind of name there, uh, a golden mineral rather. And um, there's a little bit of insane names for minerals. Again, that's acsh.org if you want to check that out. Three aspects to explore when investing in gemstones at Forbes.com. Under that title, um, it was put together by Thomas Chirac, uh, who put the article together here. They've got some pictures of some beautiful gemstones. They talk about some of the basics, really, just super, super basics before you would invest in gemstones. Be sure of the authenticity 
Make sure it is genuine. Make sure you are buying it from a reputable source that guarantees it is what it is. Even if it's just turquoise or something like that. When we would sell turquoise or minerals, we would give a certificate um, signing our name on there that, you know, this is what we say and here's why we say it is and um, how we got that information. So value and growth um, is part of it. It's kind of like a stock. You know, does the stock have value? Is there any growth potential in that value? Same thing with these rocks. They're beautiful. Are they rare? Um, is there demand for them? Will it fluctuate? Is there some sort of rarity that could, um, you know, make this happen? Like Tanzanite in Tanzania, for example. There's just such a small area there that if you buy high-quality Tanzanite, I don't think you can go wrong. Um, now, if they discover a huge catch of it somewhere else, that could that could uh, decrease the value. Um, marketing on gemstones. If a gemstone is marketed well and very popular and seen places, that also adds to the value. Personal interest and appeal. You know, something that you like um, in a market is uh, is good. It's just like. Uh, stocks and cryptocurrencies and things like that if there's some uh, some sort of uh you know black friday like oh it's the last one and everybody's trying to get it they feel that they're kind of rare that can really help and that can be a really good investment um our friends at fire mountain gems again they've got another great article on beading and gemstones um, on crystals, all sorts of stuff. So you might want to sign up with them. I'm not sponsored by them, but just passing it on for those of you who like to make jewelry and things like that. So we're in it about 26 minutes, folks. And I would like to thank you guys who've been hanging in there. And I will continue with stories on the mines of the Eastern Sierra if you want to tag along. Um, if not, I just want to encourage you, please go to RadicalRocks.com and sign up and subscribe down at the bottom of the page on any one of our social medias, our YouTube channels, our podcasts, things like that. Share that with your rock group. Help us grow because we're keeping rock hounding alive, guys. We give back, and uh, you can give back too by sharing this very unique podcast and format that uh, we've been doing for well over a year now. We've got, uh, I think, almost 120 different episodes uh, lots of blogs and quite a few of uh, videos on YouTube as well. So come on by. If you hit me up on social media, um, I will definitely get a hold of you. It's not always the first day because we do have over the span of all these different social medias, we've got thousands and thousands of people that um, are are connecting with us on a regular basis. So, but come on down, love to hear from you and maybe even do a show with you. If you've got something interesting to share, just uh, look me up. All right. Mines of the Eastern Sierra. Um, this is excerpts that are um, taken from my readings in the book uh, entitled Mines of the Eastern Sierra by Mary D. Decker and uh, comes out on La Siesta Press. Now, I don't know if this thing's in print anymore. It uh, came out uh, in uh, 1987. Uh, if you are a prospector or a rock hounder, or you just like to hear things like this, you want to go kick 
rocks around areas where other people are not. You may not find, you know, the great rocks like they find in the rock club or whatnot, you know, down at your local mineral and in, in, uh, lapidary club. But you might find something they don't have. You might find something new. Um, and you'll have a good time. Now, mines are dangerous. Be careful of caves and, and uh, mine shafts because you can drop down to your death. This book was originally printed in 1966 in the California Mines series. Um, and the introduction goes on to talk about the east, southern, uh, the eastern Sierras. This is the mountain range that goes through California where the gold rush happened. Um, up through Sutter's Mill and all that area. Those are all the Sierra Mountains. The eastern Sierras are going to be, of course, uh, in the east, further away from the ocean. Uh, great area. There was some 200 miles of a great barrier where folks, the 49ers, were seeking their treasure, their riches. They wanted to strike it rich. They heard about this gold from Sutter's Mill, and they came by the hundreds and then by the thousands and now they're there by in California as a whole by the millions. Mexicans came, Chinese came, African Americans came, Irish came, people came from all over the world. It was a melting pot. California was a melting pot of different races and cultures all wanting to live the American dream independence, the opportunity to strike it rich, the opportunity to work and to be rewarded for that work, or to work and maybe to meet failure, to overcome obstacles, to, to conquer, to maybe even to lose their lives. But they were willing to do that because no other country offered the freedom that uh, the United States of America offered. At that time, California um, was not a state, but uh, it was becoming apparent that it would be because it did become a state in 1950. So all sorts of new trails were blazed. Um, people were trapping. There was lots of grizzly bears in California at that time. People were doing that. And by 1872, mining had swept the state. Every mineable piece of ground that was easy pickings um, had been more or less found. Uh, people were washing away hillsides with giant hydraulic mining rigs. And what they would do is they'd dam the water up uh, stream. That would allow the water to build up several hundreds of pounds of pressure, um, hundreds and hundreds of pounds of pressure, uh, or more, or sometimes less. And this huge jet of water they would use to wash away the hillsides and banks and run that material through these huge, what they called long toms, sluice boxes that had riffles on them that would collect the gold as it rolled down. But because they were uh, just washing away these hillsides, this thin mud, the silk, was clogging up the riverbed um, and going down to the people who lived in the valleys who were developing for farming. Uh, California's great climate in the Great Valley, the Great Basin, would uh, allow for one of the biggest areas of farming and food production the world has ever known. The Central Valley of California was getting clogged with mud and this was killing the plants and disrupting the water for the people downstream. So in 1872, 
on May 10th, uh, there was a law that restricted hydraulic mining from that point on. But there were so many different mines. They went all the way from the tip of the state, practically, on down to Mono Lake, Inyo County, Kern County, in that area. The foothills of the High Sierras begin and go north all the way up uh, in across the state, almost into the northern Sierras, into almost um, Washington, pretty much. Okay. Um, wonderful, wonderful history. Uh, there was not a lot of recorded issues of miners having problems with the Native Americans, such as in the... Uh, Arizona and areas like that. Um, by that time, I think they pretty much knew that that uh, the white man was there to stay. Um, all of these uh, new people from all around the world coming in for the great American um, experience were not leaving and were not going to slow down. And uh, family that I have that is of Native American heritage in the foothills of the East Sierras verify that uh, for the most part people got along fairly well and not that there was no racism or that there was no issues there was occasional raids and people would uh, go and have vigilantes against them or the army would come in and uh, subdue a tribe and, and kill a lot of people it did happen from time to time but it wasn't quite as violent as what we're accustomed to seeing in the rest of the country although there was plenty of violence from time to time. All right. The Northern Mines, Dogtown and Monoville. Dogtown is located just west of the present day 395, about six-tenths of a mile of the northern turnoff to Bodie. There's a California historical plaque that marked the spot it began when a young German and his Indian wife Mary set up to do housekeeping in a dugout on Log Creek where they panned for gold for a living. And then what happened? Well, more people came and more people came and more diggings and more gold rushes in the eastern Sierra. The Mormons of Nevada heard about it. They came down. Two years later, Dogtown was a bustling community. Um, people started to wander around the hills here. Walker River, uh, that was an area where uh, they found some things. It was rich gold in this area. Uh, they could the, pick gold right up off the ground, and uh, it was spread around as if it was magic. And quickly that was picked up. People went all the way down from Carson Valley up through Owens Valley. The rush uh, and, and ground was claimed for miles First, the gold rush of the East Sierra had occurred and Monoville had come into being. There was a frantic gold rush and uh, there was a frantic need to fill the needs of the miners. So a mining camp was developed, lumber was whipsawed uh, before five sawmills were erected in this area. Many cabins and buildings were built from that time. Water from Virginia Creek for hydraulic hydronic. Uh, operations took on. People had to endure severe weather in the winter. Freezes uh, killed people and chased some away, but there was always more people coming to prospect. It did not slow down. It became a booming mining town, Monoville. 
It was hailed as a new Comstock. Load mining was a new way. The buildings were doing well. They were moved around to uh, mine the different areas because sawed lumber was in demand. Now, through history, this area was worked many, many times. Trails, roads, and communication followed as modern times pushed on. The gold on Dog Creek, they would use this to buy supplies in the new county seat of Bridgeport. If you've ever driven down 395, you know where Bridgeport turnoff is. There's no way of knowing how much gold was taken from Dogtown and Mono diggings, but it's estimated to be in the millions of dollars. Other placer deposits extended on the base of the Sierra, varying in elevations from Bridgeport to Owens River. For almost half a century, the entire 80 miles were prospect with slush boxes and rockers. Rockers are kind of like slush box. They use less water and they rock back and forth, kind of like a, like a rocking chair. Now, these were carried out to the largest deposits uh, with hydraulic mining. And then again, uh, that went on uh, through the 1880s. The Virginia Creek Hydraulic Mining Company operated very profitably uh, 3,200 acres on the old mono diggings. You can still see some of the stone cabins and digouts along the stream, according to this book. Um, like I said, it was written in 1966, but it was reviewed in 1987. And um, there's probably still, for the person with a good eye, there's probably still a few traces of that old city. You could still pan in that area. Uh, on the hillside, uh, Monoville over the ridge of the south, if it's open, I mean, hopefully they'd let you take a gold pan. I don't know. you got to check out the laws. But on the north side of Conway Summit, the old water ditches from Virginia Creek may still be traced on the hills. The Cinnamon, which is S-I-N-N-A-M-O-N cut, is said to have yielded $80,000 in gold. Um, it's about 1700 by 200 foot scar in the landscape and uh, yeah you might still find a flake or two there if you were to dig around very exciting so guys I'm gonna leave you with that um, there are other districts in this book to read about the Homer district the Tioga the Prescott the Benton uh, the Lake District and uh, the Owens Valley Mines and other districts, some here that I've highlighted that are quite interesting around Camp Independence. So lots of good information here. These books are so valuable. You want to add these to your collections. Mines of the Eastern Sierras by Mary D. Decker, D-E, capital D-E-C-K-E-R. And um, it's from La Siesta Press, Mines of the Eastern Sierras. So guys, I want to thank you for tuning in. Remember... Rockhounds don't die, they petrify.